In my younger days, my, my friend wanted to get married. I'm still quite young. But... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he needed financial assistance for his wedding. He wanted this grand wedding abroad. He didn't quite have the means for the wedding. And so he asked around, um, especially his family, to contribute. And they said, hey, you're a man now. <laughs> you need to fend for yourself. <laughs> So no one was willing to help him at this stage. So he decided to apply for a loan. And then this loan he would spread over the course of a year. Uh, but the loan company, as they do, asked for a guarantor. So he called me up. We had a discussion. He was, asked for a favour. He said, bro, can you help me? So I did what any husband does. You go back to your wife, you talk. <laughs> can we do this? Can we not? What's the implications of this? <laughs> if it all goes kaput, you lose a friend, someone doesn't get married, you possibly lose a home even, you know. Um, certainly if it's not repaid. So he asked me, can you be my guarantor? So after much discussion, I went back to him and I said, look, bro, if this doesn't work out, this is quite a huge thing here. I, I recognise you want to get married. Can you not delay? Can you not wait? There's other options. He wanted to get married. Okay. Okay, make sure you make the repayments. So we did the structure. We structured it. And so he was looking to me as a friend uh, to be his guarantor. So I haven't re- recollected how trustworthy at uni he was with paying back debt, <laughs> which he was. I said, okay. We'll do this. He got married. He's still married. Got many kids, a few kids. And I still have a roof over my head. <laughs> across course, A huge risk, you might say. You might say, why? Why did you do such a thing? It could have been a game changer. I counted the cost and I hoped that my friend would keep his word to repay, the, to keep up with the repayments especially on time and within that time frame. I took a risk with my friend. Now the Bible reveals to us that God long ago made a promise to his people. Those that he graciously and effectually calls to be his children. Not by works, not by some kind of thing where it's our own strength or talent or love that we had shown him. Rather, he lavishly pours out his love on undeserving people so that he might be glorified and receive all praise. Now, this promise he made in accordance with his plan of salvation to save sinners, to reconcile us back to him. And so God, before he created the world and humanity, was fully aware that we would fall, that we would fall short of his standards and in his glory. And they would fall into sin. God was not surprised by the original sin of Adam and Eve. God was not reacting to their sin when he promised in Genesis 3 a saviour that would defeat evil ultimately. God's plan did not somehow change along the way. No, God before time made provision for a saviour that would save his people from every tongue, tongue, every creed, nation, language, people group. God knew before time humanity would fall and because of this fall, humanity would incur 
huge spiritual debt. So the consequences of one man sinning would reverberate throughout every fabric, every nature, human nature and human beings. And so the hold of sin, the power of sin, the dominion of Satan over the humans and, and the wages of sin ensued, namely death. The infection of sin came as, as a result of breaking God's commands. So sin is lawlessness, transgression. And so consequently, there is a penalty, we know, for lawlessness, as there is in any land that has laws. Who can save one from this road to destruction? Who can pay the penalty for the sickness that infected the very nature that we have? That's broken the cords of fellowship with the living God. Who can fulfill the promise of salvation and eternal life with God? Up steps the greatest guarantor, Jesus Christ. The guarantor for his people. He's not only a guarantor, but he paid the debt for us. He said, this is the debt and punishment for what you've done. But I will go and stand in your place. I will go to the cross for you. I will pay your debts. And so he credited and credits our bankrupt account with his righteousness. John Owen says this. He is the surety of the father's faithfulness to us. And the surety for, the, for us of our faithfulness to him works both ways. Faithfulness of God to us and our faithfulness to him, Christ stands for us. And at the proper time, the Bible says, God manifested his promise in his word. The preaching of his word. And so the mystery that was hidden was made visible by God himself. The word manifested in verse 3 describes the external revealing of a true character. When something manifests, it goes beyond saying someone making an appearance. But when we use a phrase, I see that person's true character now. That's the manifestation. That's that type of language we see here. That person's character is on display. And now we must take care not to force the text here. The passage is not referring specifically to the incarnate word, as in John, the word being manifested, the word became flesh. But he's speaking here about the gospel that was revealed by Jesus himself, the good news that we have. And so God manifested the hope of eternal life in the gospel at this appointed time. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But the gospel is not only found in the New Testament. The gospel was proclaimed right at the beginning of time as we know it. All scripture, the Bible says, is God, God breathed. And after the original sin of man, in the midst of disobedience and lawlessness, God acts in mercy and grace as he proclaims the good news. He says this in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and, your, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
That's what God said to Satan, the serpent. And so we see here the Old Testament's anticipatory hope, the hope that was to come. God announces the future coming of a seed, an offspring that will save sinners from the curse of sin and its effect. But at this stage, it may not be so clear as to where this hope is and what hope of eternal life is from that passage of Scripture. And so if you've never read the Bible before, when you read Genesis, and if that's your starting point, you may not necessarily see and miss what's being proclaimed here. God manifested hope of eternal life in bringing his word that he promised before the ages began and proclaimed it right then, immediately after they sinned, bringing to light what was hidden. But God, at the proper time, showed forth this eternal life. You see, from the eternal God's vantage point, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. But from our vantage point, we consider, consider eternity spans, eternity, past, present, and future. And at, time, at that time, God chose and deemed excellent to deliver his word. He proclaimed it then. There's something I want us to see in verse 12 of chapter 1. We're reminded here, even the prophets in Crete, their own prophets were saying that the Cretans were liars. They were called liars. As we read and we looked at this morning, God never lies. God came true to his word. How so? The mystery of the gospel was revealed through his prophets in a Firstly, a general way. That's our first point. God reveals his promised words through the prophets. See, God in times past spoke through his prophets. They grasped to see some degree of the redemption that was to come. And so we know many Old Testament prophets who quoted and and prophesied about the coming Messiah, the coming salvation. And one such prophet, Moses, prophesied of the coming saviour in Deuteronomy 18.15, which is quoted in Acts 3.22. We can turn to Acts 3.22. It says this. Moses said, the Lord God will raise for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Listen to him. Then what shall be the result if the people do not listen to him? Verse 23 answers, they shall be destroyed. And here Moses prophesied of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus and the life-giving power that is given to those who follow him. And so when we read verse 24, and all the other prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Proclamation of God. Jeremiah, you don't need to turn to this, says in chapter 23, 5 to 6, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up For David, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely 
and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. See, Jeremiah proclaimed a righteous branch of David that would save his people and bring righteousness to them. And so just those two examples, we see the prophets spoke as God gave them utterance. They proclaimed these days that were to come. They spoke centuries before the gospel was made known to man where we could see it so clearly. And even though they didn't see those days, they had faith. The Bible says, not having received these things promised, but having seen them from afar and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, they had faith. Even for things that God has spoken through them, they didn't necessarily see it, but they trusted God. How did they proclaim something that their eyes had never seen, their eyes had never witnessed? Well, the Bible is clear that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They spoke as they were inspired by God and, or to speak of his excellencies of the coming age of salvation. The Spirit of God reveals through weak individuals the strategic plan of God. These were not mighty men. They were weak, but God still in their weakness proclaimed his coming good news that would come in the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. Can it be that God only sees into the future and therefore only responds to what his eternal eyes can see ahead? Is that the God that we serve? If that indeed is how our God brings about the good news, then actually we are worshipping a God who can only see but cannot act. But that's not our God. That's not true of God. And praise be to his name. We serve a mighty God who promises and works out his plan and does not change course by anyone's counsel. And so Isaiah 46, 8 to 10 says of him, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And so the same God who spoke through the prophets also acts out his word. He accomplishes his word. He not only sees into the distance when every king raised and pulled down, in every kingdom that conquers and fades away, through the lives of the mighty and the weak, the faint and the strong, he works out his plan. His counsel stands. So what should be our response? See, these prophets don't commended through their faith, says in Hebrews, did not see what was promised. But they trusted in God. What does your faith in Jesus look like at this moment? Do you doubt God's external, eternal promises? Are you looking to God? 
Have you been weakened by the cares of life? Or are you struggling with the burden? Things that are overbearing. Have you lost hope this evening? Is it difficult to see the hope of eternal life in the midst of the battles with sin? These prophets had faith in looking forward. And so we who live in this age must have faith. But our faith now, we have such a privilege. It's rooted in what Christ has done. Christ has come. He has died. He's resurrected again. That's our faith. That's who our faith stands upon. And so this is our second point, the word of God manifested by Jesus Christ. This Jesus who created the word and was foreknown before the foundation of the world was made manifest at the proper time for the sake of you and for me. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope is in God. So my faith and hope is in God. A divine plan occurred before the ages began. God the Father purposed salvation for rebellious sinners. He ordained before time began that only God could make atonement for sin and the consequent chaos that followed. In order for the creative order to be restored, a sinless redeemer was needed. Jesus, the second person, of the Godhead willingly took the position of subordination to fulfill the rescue plan. As a quote from Bavink that puts this glorious work of God in such a wonderful way. It is completely incomprehensible to us how God can reveal himself and to some extent make himself known in created beings. Eternity in time, immensity in space, infinity in the finite, immutability in change, being and becoming the all as it were in that which is nothing. This mystery cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. That's where we stand. We cannot comprehend everything about God. It's a great mystery. But as things have been revealed to us, this mystery of Christ's incarnation is the life and soul of a Christian. It's the life and soul of the church. This is the heart of the body of Christ, the head of the church and the sustainer of every believer. God knew that we would sin and fall short of his glory. And indeed, Satan and his cohorts had already fallen before the original sin in Genesis. God pronounced death to mankind, saying, Dust, you shall return. But how would the promise of eternity be revealed? Well, Jesus, Jesus, the Son, the co eternal with God, the Father, and God, the Holy Spirit, voluntarily subordinated himself to the Father as a mediator in order for us to be saved from our sins and receive the promised life eternal life. Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We're not saying that Christ is 
subordinate in his co-eternal relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, but in his role as mediator. He took a position for you and for me. He willingly came and put human flesh on for me and for you. So the son's agreement with the father was not initiated at the incarnation, but from eternity past. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, testifies to this eternal covenant with the Godhead. As he lifted his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him all authority over flesh, to give eternal life to all who you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How did Jesus make eternal hope known? He revealed the very character of God, the very name of God. He made known the only true God. He glorified God on earth, revealing the glory that was hidden. He revealed it to us. He gives all who follow him the words that he was given by the Father. Words of eternal life. And even now he intercedes, not for the world, but for those the Father has given him. Jesus consecrated himself that we may be sanctified in truth. He gave of himself. He revealed the relational love between the Trinity to us finite beings. It pleased God to send his son to be a ransom for us. A payment for the debt we owed God. That, that eternal debt we could never pay. Jesus has paid it off for us. He stood for us. So that we can, in him, be right with God. That we may have the righteousness of God, the Bible says. And so Jesus was clothed in the very frame and nature of those he reconciled to a holy God, yet without sin. He made atonement like a sacrificial lamb to the slaughter, to quench and to satisfy the righteous and just demands of God. And now we stand. We stand forgiven at the cross. We live eternally because he rose from the grave. We live in hope of his return because he fulfilled the eternal promise. And so, brothers and sisters, when Jesus appeared, it was the dawn of the blessed hope of salvation, the blessed hope of God, the inauguration of the promised kingdom, the promised eternal kingdom. His is the kingdom and the glory forever. And so in times past, we see God spoke through his prophets. But in these days, God speaks to us through his beloved son, Jesus. But how is this hope of eternal life in Christ manifested even in our day? Especially the day between his ascension and his glorious return. This is our final point. God reveals his promised word through the preaching of his word. As we turn back to verse 3, this is the main point. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, 
and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time this hope was manifested in his word through the preaching with which I, as it's Paul, was entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. See, the preaching of God's word is fundamental to bringing living hope to the ears and the hearts of unbelievers and believers alike. Paul knew that those who convey, teach, preach God's word have such a huge responsibility to present Christ and him crucified. Most especially in the church. The context here is in the church. He's addressing Titus who is meant to set up and to organise the leadership in Crete. But it's also a gospel witness to the lost world. Whether that is the unsaved within the church or outside the church. The Bible says, how then will they call on him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? So God, at his appointed time, raised up apostles and disciples who would proclaim the good news of Jesus when Jesus ascended. A time, some might say, a thirst for knowledge. There was a time of persecution, a time when the Romans had actually created all the logistics and the the Roman roads. Some people say that was a perfect time. God, it's amazing. We don't know why God at that time did his work. We can speculate, but eternity is in God's hands. His time is wise. He's a timely God, a righteous God. But one thing we know, it wasn't by accident. When Jesus came, and at that time, the way the gospel was spread across the land, it was such a perfect time. But the gospel must be proclaimed. Why? Because God commands it. Jesus himself commands it. Paul says he has been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. That is, Jesus, to preach the hope of eternal life. He was sent to preach the gospel by the command of Jesus. And so the word of faith is what Christians should proclaim, the good news. It's not, as, we, as sometimes it's, it's taught about the word of faith, it's not something that we declare things, almost like declaring things that are not as though they are. That's what God does. He declares things because his promises are rooted in his character. And when he says something, he fulfills them. And so he brings forth things that aren't, are, aren't, as though they are. When we look at this word here, this Greek word, to proclaim, it means the result of proclaiming. When Paul is saying here to preach, he's specifically talking about the result of preaching. And so bear with me here. The Greek word here is kerygma, meaning the result of Proclaiming. It differs from another word which is similar, which is called caruso, which means to proclaim. The focus here is on the content and not just the act of preaching. So an example as we can find in Jonah, in chapter 3, verse 2, says this. Arise, as we will know this, go to Nineveh, that great city. The Bible says, 
call out. So this is where we read that word proclaim. Proclaim against it the message. Now, that same word, slightly different, means the proclamation that I tell you. So it reads this, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out, proclaim against it the message. Proclamation. And so this is the same word here we find in Titus. It's the content, it's the gospel, not just the act of preaching. That's what's conveyed here. And so what's fundamental in preaching God's word is, as Paul said previously in verse 1, the knowledge of the truth of God. Why? Destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, taking captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so we are told here, like we read earlier, these Cretans were liars. They were empty talkers, deceivers. I was saying that the preaching of God's word, the content, the good news, silences such falsehood. Liars are only silenced by the truth that is proclaimed. We must proclaim God's word, the truth, and nothing but the truth. To what purpose and to what end should God's word be preached? Verse 1 reminds us, for the sake of God's elect. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so people come to know Jesus by the proclamation of the gospel. The content is very important. The spirit of God working through man and through women of God, sharing. And so the preaching is not just left to the elders, but to the church to proclaim the gospel for God's elect. And so, the end thereof, that we may live godly lives. Godly lives in the church. Godly lives in our family. Godly lives in whatever situation and surrounding we find ourselves. Once we receive hope, the ongoing source of hope is only through the encouragement of Scripture. Daily living by every word that comes out from the mouth of God. As a warning to those of us that preach and teach God's word. We must take care because we are preaching life to the lifeless. Blessed hope to those full of life. The word of God must not be taken lightly. Paul says here that this word, he has been entrusted with it. It's an entrust. It's not preaching God's word as a job that replaces another. This is proclaiming the very truth that brings life, eternal life. And so it's very weighty. It must be taken as such. Why? We think of those who entrusted the next generation with their swords of battle. And that's the idea here, when God entrusts us to preach his word. And so the preacher must preach the gospel even to ourselves and to others. To what end? To focus on eternity. To keep our eyes fixed on eternity. 
and so as we close this evening. What is our encouragement from this scripture? Well, you are partakers of the promise. You are partakers of this wonderful eternal life that we have in Christ. Christ holds you secure. You are secure in his grip. The Bible says you are sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus, who was a guarantor and went to the cross for us to pay off our debt, now sent us the Holy Spirit, another guarantor of our eternal inheritance in Christ. And so one day we will see him. We will no longer live by faith, but our faith will become sight. And God has held us from eternity past. The God who is the same yesterday, today and forever. Jesus has never lost one. And so when you face times of worry and depression, and when you face at times of confusion, when you feel disorientated, know that in those times you have a living hope. Christ has paid for you. He has made a living and better way. So what must, must we do except wait for that blessed hope? There are unsearchable riches in Christ. And so we mustn't hold on to the glittery things in this world. The church, we must recognise our role in this life. The church is to be the vehicle to bring the gospel to the lost. Is this our desire? Is this our desire to proclaim God's word, to proclaim the gospel? It's a mandate. That's why Paul says we've been commanded to do this. And so, like I said earlier, we all have the mandate to proclaim the gospel. The world is not going to hear the good news only by preachers on a Sunday. Each and every one of us, wherever God has placed us, he requires us to proclaim his good news, to share that, to not look at our own insufficiencies or our own weaknesses, but to speak forth God's word, that which he has promised from time. He works on that. He fulfills his word. Ours is to proclaim. We must be a slave of Jesus, as Paul says, a servant of Christ. We must be submitted to God. What is our challenge this evening? The question is, how willing are we to be a slave of Christ? Is sound doctrine making you more like Christ? Or is it a case of filling up? Are we pouring out? Are we serving others? Are we submitting to God? Reaching out to the lost? Serving others within the church? Serving our community? Sound doctrine must affect how we live. Are you waiting for the Christ's return? Are you eagerly anticipating his return? Or will he find us sleeping? Lazy in our walk with him? Will he find us dabbling with worldly passions? Or are we training ourselves onto godliness? Are we relying on the Holy Spirit? Are we trusting in God to fulfill his promises in and through our lives? See, God acted on his promise to send our Saviour Jesus Christ. 
But how we live is important because it reveals how submitted we are to God. That's the truth. How we live reveals that whether we're being sanctified, purified by Christ. What was promised has already come and has been fulfilled. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. As some count slowness, but is patient towards us. What a merciful God we have. Merciful to his people. Waiting for us to turn to him. In the same way, God at the proper time made known his promise of eternal life. There is a day that has come. Jesus has come. There's an age where the gospel is being proclaimed so clearly. We see the clarity. But there's a day that's coming still. The day of the Lord. And as a referee blows a whistle to, to end a football match, one day, God will roll up the heavens and the earth. No one knows this time. But it's ordained time. This world as we know it will be no more. Where will you be at the consummation of time? If you're not a child of this promise of eternal life in Christ, well, turn away from the world. Turn away from the world that is passing away. It will be dissolved like acid, corroding the skin. It will be done away with, set on fire and burned, Bible says. Why choose death when the offer of eternity was purchased by Christ himself, by God himself, through Christ? Believe in him. Believe and be saved. See, God's mercy is greater, so greater than our sins. Our greatest sin is mercy is greater. Even at our worst, God offers us eternal life. What merciful God. So turn to the Lord. He's coming back again. To my brothers and sisters in Christ, the new heavens and the new earth awaits us. All our struggles with sin and the affairs of this world will be no more. There, the Bible says, righteousness dwells. Hold on to the promise of God, for all the promises of God find a yes in Christ. And that is why it is through him we utter amen to God for his glory. So God promised this hope of eternal life before the ages began. He prophesied it by the prophets. He fulfilled it by the person of Jesus Christ. But he made clear this hidden hope, this hidden mystery by the preaching of his word, by the proclamation of the good news of Christ. Will you proclaim about Christ? Will you shy away? Will you continue to share in the face of adversity? Or will you share this life-giving word to others that do not know it? And that's the challenge this evening. That wherever God puts us, he requests of us to live for him. But also we must speak. Christians, we must proclaim the gospel. However that looks like, trust God to work in and through us. Amen.